Mormon Discussion Podcast is about helping Latter-day Saints like you lead with faith while tackling deeper, complex issues within Mormonism. All financial support goes directly towards keeping the podcast alive and supporting listeners like you. To support the podcast, please consider becoming a premium subscriber at mormondiscussionpodcast.org. Again, that's mormondiscussionpodcast, all one word, dot org. You can do this for as little as $1.50 a month or $12 a year. And this will also reward you by letting you listen to premium episodes like this one months before the general public has access. Thanks for listening. And now, on to what you've been waiting to hear. Annika, you and I have talked about doing a podcast for a while. We kind of saw that there wasn't a whole lot of there's an, there are an awful lot of podcasts and resources for the person that's going through the faith, faith crisis. Not a whole awful lot of support and resources for the spouses. And we're kind of doing this, you know, flying by the seat of our pants. We're kind of learning as we're going. And so, you know, I think our hope is that maybe in our conversation today, we can offer some ideas for, for others. Just get some pointers and, and, Get people started on how to help be supportive of the, the spouse that uh, still believes. Not long after we were married, my husband first began expressing doubts. And within about three or four years, he had completely left the church. So it's been about a little over 25 years that he's been completely affected. That was a long time ago, long before there was Internet or any of these things, you know, that kind of help that people can turn to. A lot of what I've learned has been real trial and error. And unfortunately, more error than, than anything else. We've raised uh, three boys. Our youngest is still at home. He's 15, and our oldest is 24, and our middle son is uh, 20. Yeah, I consider myself a believing member. I probably have somewhat unorthodox beliefs now. Over the last 25 years or so, my beliefs have changed dramatically. Um, but I still very much love the church, love the gospel. I think of it as my home. And it really makes me sad when I see other couples going through the, the shock and the trauma when one spouse leaves the church. It's it's really sad to see it. So why don't you tell us a little bit about your, like, how you came to where you're at? My name's Annika. And I'm really grateful for this chance to be talking with Charlene. I am a lifelong member. I grew up in the church. I have pioneer ancestry on both sides. My family was active my whole life growing up. And now I went on a mission. I got married in the temple. I've been married almost nine years. And about a year and a half ago, my husband lost his faith in prophets, in Mormonism, uh, and shortly after that, lost his faith in God as well. And that was a, that was really hard. It was just hard. When he proposed to me, he didn't ask me, will you marry me? He asked, will you be by my side forever? And so I went into this pretty much planning on a, a more traditional temple marriage. And I I just, I didn't know what to do. I didn't know where to turn. I had a brand new baby right then. And, um, I cried a lot. I was, I was just a mess. And one of the things that really, really helped me through this was I found a support group on Facebook called Another Testament of Marriage. It's a fantastic group. The purpose of the group is to strengthen 
mixed faith marriages. So it's for the believing spouse when the other spouse has lost their faith. And that's where I met Charlene and a bunch of other really fantastic people. My sister had actually gone through this a couple years before I did. Her husband had left the church. And until I went through it myself, I really had had no idea the kind of impact it would have on my family, on my life, on everything. I think most members kind of have a hard time imagining this scenario and they're not quite sure how to support our families. Because as Mormons, we know how to deal with fellow Mormons. We know how to deal with potential investigators, but it's kind of challenging to deal with post-Mormons or ex-Mormons or or disbelieving, disaffected Mormons. So I was hoping that we could talk today a little bit about how the ward and priesthood leaders could reach out to families like ours and help to, and help us. I know, for example, big milestones like having your baby blessed, having your child baptized, your son ordained, going on a mission. These are times of celebration and um, can be really spiritual experiences. But if one spouse doesn't believe in the church or in priesthood, or as opposed to having his or her children indoctrinated in the church or baptized into the church, this can be really, really stressful. What are some ways you think the ward can make these types of milestones a little easier and less stressful for mixed faith families? Members who haven't faced this kind of a, of a question probably aren't, don't realize how really intertwined our beliefs are, our religion is with our marriage. There's almost no boundary between them. And so when uh, one spouse begins questioning the church and doubting the church, it has huge, huge impact on the relationship, the marriage relationship, and the family and the children. It's not, you know, like someone just changes, the, you know, their football team or, or whatever. I mean, it really has huge impact on, on the marriage relationship as well as you know, the whole family dynamics. So let's talk about some of the things that how church might impact or some of the things we want uh, church members to consider when they have a couple like ours in their ward that, that have a disaffected spouse. Well, um, I think the first thing is church leaders, and we'll say bishops. We could include all church leaders, your Relief Society presidents, your quorum presidents, and so forth. But let's start with the bishop. He's your, you know, he's your first go-to person, I guess. Bishops and other leaders should be aware, uh, should always keep the lines of communication open. Please don't just go to the wife or, the, or the, the believing spouse and ask them to answer all the questions for how to deal with these milestones or deal with these ordinances. Talk to the spouse. Ask the spouse, you know, say, you know, your son or daughter's, you know, turning eight here in a little bit. Have you thought about baptism? What are your thoughts about baptism? Do you want your child baptized? If not, why not? Is there anything we can do to make this a positive experience for you and your family? There's all sorts of questions that a bishop should be asking the unbelieving spouse just right up front. <clears throat> and then, yes, consider how can you involve the uh, disaffected spouse in this ordinance? Can they give a talk? Can they participate in the ordinance in any way? Maybe they're not going to do the baptism, but perhaps um, the bishop may be comfortable with them standing in the circle at confirmation. 
you know, there's all sorts of different ways to include that disaffected spouse in the ordinance, but it requires communication. That's good advice, but I do want to say there are some people who, when they leave the church, are so bitter towards it that they would really, they might not handle it well if any member of the church uh, tried to reach out towards them. So I would almost say, ask the believing spouse, do you think that your husband or wife would be open to talking to us about this? Because we'd really like to get their input. I agree with Charlene, talk to the disbelieving spouse, but maybe just put a quick feeler out to the believing spouse. Because if you try to reach out, that may or may not go over as planned. And you definitely don't want to make things more stressful for the believing spouse. And and that brings up a really good question, you know, good issue though, is the disaffected spouse, you know, may not want attention, may see attention as, you know, just making them a project. You're right. They may, there may be bitter feelings. Um, and, you know, they're going through their own adjustment as well. So what kind of attention do you think that leadership should be giving to a mixed faith home? Well, you know, the church has a lot of ways of keeping in touch with its members. We have home teaching and visiting teaching and priesthood interviews. And all of those might need to get tweaked just a little bit to fit the needs of a, a mixed home teachers might be welcome, you know, just like normal, or they might be welcome as long as they don't bring a spiritual message. Or I know one family where home teachers are welcome as long as they don't come in a shirt and tie and don't bring a message. If they just want to come visit as friends, that's fine. A lot of these members who are leaving the church have contributed enormous amounts of time, energy, love, money to the church. And if nobody seems to notice that they've left, that can be hurtful. So I think it's good to at least reach out to these people and say, hey, we miss you. Um, we understand you're not comfortable coming to church. That's fine. But we just want you to know that we still love you. You're welcome here anytime. And if the family gets kind of ignored and nobody seems to notice, then the believing spouse can start to feel like his or her contributions are not really valued either. On the other hand, if you feel like your family has become the ward project and that people are only stopping by or bringing you cookies or the missionaries only want to visit you because your name has come up in ward council and they're on a reactivation campaign that comes that can come across as kind of phony and in some cases unwelcome and if it's not sincere it's not going to be very effective we should be friends with people because we love them and because they are children of our heavenly father not because we think we can react i guess my advice is be sincere be real and show love and you have to find a balance between making them the project family and between ignoring them and pretending like nothing bad has ever happened well and i think some some people in the church when when a member leaves the pe- the church members may feel rejected by this person, they may feel offended themselves, like, you know, what did we do, or what's wrong with us that he won't have anything to do with us, and so I know everyone has tender feelings on this whole, you know, once something like this kind of breaks into into a ward family, but I would hope that ward members can get past those tender feelings that they have, and like you said, just really be loving and inclusive as much as you can, sincerely. Like you say, don't make it a project. Don't go overboard. 
you know, don't do it for the numbers, but do it because you really have want to have continue a relationship with this person. Even though they've left the church, we want to be able to keep those doors open and those relationships uh, in place as much as possible. I agree. Family and community and relationships, building a community of Zion together, these are some of the greatest gifts of the gospel. If it's the husband who has left the church, that often leaves the wife and children without any priesthood in the home. How would you recommend that church leaders lend support in that situation? You know, again, this is, especially when it comes to blessings, from my experience, my perspective, blessings are a very profoundly spiritual experience, one that creates binding ties of love and affection. And I think that the power in a blessing comes from those ties that we have. And that's why, you know, when a father or a husband gives a blessing to his wife or to his children, I think that one of the things that makes it so powerful and effective is the fact, is that relationship he has with his wife or with his children. When it's someone who's not related, they don't have that deep connection, you know. And so it makes asking for the blessing more difficult, but it also opens up really sensitive channels, really sensitive areas in our hearts. We need to be very, very careful that church priesthood holders in the church who do give blessings to family members are very sensitive to the impact that that has on the hearts and the spirits of those receiving the blessing. And that even though it's not what we want, it's creating a little bit of a barrier between the husband who no longer exercises this priesthood and his family. Here's something that he's being excluded from. Now, he may not, this may not bother him at all. He may be like, I don't care. You know, I never believed it anyway, or I don't believe it now. It's no big deal. But at some level, you're opening up new feelings, and we need to be careful about that. So the first thing, again, you know, it goes back to this communication thing. First of all, ward leaders, priesthood holders, whoever's going to do a blessing for family really, really needs to talk to the husband. See what his feelings are. Again, see how much he wants to be be participating. Does he want to be present? Does he want to have any input on the content of the blessing? You know, there's other ways to include him. And I personally, I feel that every blessing that is given uh, should be given with the full knowledge and consent of the of the disbelieving husband. He should know, you know, when his family members are getting blessings, from whom, and what the purpose of the blessing is. I think it would be wrong to do it without his knowing. I think that would just contribute to more barriers between the family members. In, in our case, we had one really, really wonderful home teacher. And, you know, just as I was going in for surgery, he was there at the hospital, met us there. And he asked my husband, he said, what are your concerns? What, what, it, what worries you most about this that's happening and how can I help? And then he incorporated those things into the blessing that he gave me. And, and that right there, that thoughtfulness and that concern for my husband had just as much, if not more, impact I think, on me than the actual blessing itself did. So just good communication is is what I would say. And, you know, understand, you know, like every time I would ask for a blessing, it was kind of like opening up a new wound because I had to admit to myself and to the person I was asking the blessing of that 
my husband was unwilling or unable to give that blessing. That hurts. And it's not something that we like to do that much. <laughs> and so be sensitive to that. Understand that, that uh, the need for the blessing creates a certain amount of vulnerability, but it's compounded by the fact that we are having to go outside of our family and go to, you know, someone else to get that blessing. That kind of makes it a, a doubly sensitive issue for us. Well, and I'll admit, I get very, very few blessings. And I'm sure that, you know, other women who have, you know, fully acted on believing husbands probably get 10 times are asking their husbands quite often for blessings, for illnesses or problems or whatever. And, and I find that when I ask for blessings, it really is when something really major is going on. We just kind of limit ourselves to, on our blessings. Now, there are some times when we're meeting with the bishop, um, anyway, for fast offering or temple recommend interviews or with our home teachers. Do you think it would be helpful for them to just offer a blessing to say, hey, you know, would you like a blessing before you leave so that you didn't have to make a specific trip to seek it out? That would always make it much, much easier. The fact that we need it, like I said, is, you know, is one level of vulnerability. But having to actually ask for it is also really, really difficult. And if a priesthood leader were sensitive to that and were willing to offer it without being asked, oh, I think that makes a world of difference. What about callings? Or how does your husband's disaffection impact your involvement with the church or, or church callings? Well, I think that's going to vary a lot depending on the individual. But when your spouse leaves the church, it is heartbreaking and stressful and painful and difficult and all-consuming. And sometimes there is just no emotional or physical energy to fulfill a, a demanding calling. There might not even be the emotional resources to go visiting teaching. So in some cases, a spouse may ask to be released from their callings. On the other hand, there is such joy to be found in service and reaching out to other people and remembering that we are not the only people who are struggling, who have needs, that sometimes callings can be a lifesaver. They can keep us grounded in the church, keep us connected to our community. So maybe being Relief Society president or Elders Quorum president is exactly what you need when your spouse has left the church. I would ask bishops to be sensitive because even if you would like to be primary president or young women's counselor or something, your husband might be very jealous of the time that you're giving to church callings. And it can cause a lot of um, tension in the home because the disaffected spouse may feel that you love church more than your family, that you are willing to give more resources to this institution that they dislike than you are to give to your own family. So it's a, it's a really careful balancing act. The other thing I would caution is that if someone has a calling and then their spouse leaves and then they are released from their calling, you know, they are um, told that we, we no longer need your services in um, as Relief Society teacher or whatever calling you had. It can feel a little bit like 
Did I just get released because my husband or wife lost their testimony? Are you questioning my faith? Are are you saying that there's something wrong with me and I'm not worthy, I'm not righteous enough to have this, you know, calling where I, I teach other people or I teach the youth? Or it can feel a little bit like maybe there's a little bit of judgment that if, if I were righteous enough... You know, if, if our family prayers were good enough, if our family home evenings were scriptorial enough, that if I had done my part to have the spirit in our home, I could have, you know, prevented my spouse from leaving and that I'm not worthy enough and that's why they don't want me to serve. So I would say if you are going to release a spouse going through this, please just be very clear that it's be very clear about the reasoning why you're doing it. So it's very individual and like everything else Charlene has been saying, it has a lot to do with communication. Just talk to the person, see what they think they can handle. And obviously if you feel inspired to extend um, a, a different calling, then counsel together about it and, and work it out between you and the Lord. Yeah. So now there has been a tradition um, among some bishops to, call in the husband first before giving, you know, and, and talking to the husband for issuing a calling to, to the wife. You don't often see that the other way around where they ask the wife first before they, you know, before they issue the calling to the husband. But would you say that this is an appropriate thing to do to talk to the spouse before asking about her, you know, asking the, the believing spouse to, to accept a calling? I think it might be one way to include the disaffected spouse. One more opportunity to say your opinion matters and we're interested in your input and we'd like your support um, as your husband or wife fulfills this calling. I don't think it's necessary necessarily, but I could see some feelings getting hurt, especially if the disaffected spouse had the perception that that was a normal thing that he would be asked, but they're choosing not to do it because he's feeling discounted because he doesn't believe anymore. So again, it, it depends a lot on the personalities involved. Now, I know one thing I've been asked quite a bit is, did someone offend your husband? You know, is there something that we can do to apologize, to help help him feel more comfortable? Is there something that happened that we could prevent in the future so that other people don't have this problem? You know, what what pushed him away from the church and what can we do to help bring him back to Christ? What would you say to something like that? <laughs> well, that's a hard one. I think nowadays, most of the times when, when a person finally leaves the church, that's it. They're done. They're out the door and there's very little you're going to be able to do to bring that person back. Not that it wouldn't happen, but I haven't seen it happen yet. So I think there's very little you can bring do to bring them back. However, there are channels you can keep open, and I do think you should. Uh, I would hope that, that ward leaders, ward members, would work very hard to keep those channels open. And first is contact from the ward, that it not always go through the bleeding spouse. It, it really hurts me when I have leaders who will go through all sorts of contortions to avoid talking to my husband. They'll go through me. They'll go through my children. They'll maybe, you know, they'll do anything but actually talk to my husband. I don't know. Are they afraid of him? Do they think he's going to start spouting some anti-Mormon stuff? I have no idea. 
why there's so much reticence at times um, to talk to him because he's actually a very nice guy. <laughs> so I think that's the first thing is just make sure that you will, that, that ward members, uh, leaders will talk to the spouse and, and feel comfortable at it. Don't try not to get uptight about this. He's still a normal person. Uh, he didn't suddenly grow horns or, you know, turn into an agent of the devil overnight, <laughs> you know. And I also think they need, we need to be very careful about judging their disaffection so often. When, I know when my husband first left, he was there, they would say, well, that's because of pride. Or he just got too much of education because he went on to get a master's degree in philosophy. Well, of course, you say philosophy, and that's kind of a trigger word for some members. And so there you go. That's why he left the church. It was that philosophy studies that did it. Or there's the assumption that they were breaking commandments, or they didn't pray enough, or they didn't read their script. There's a whole list of things. And all of those explanations for why someone might leave the church carry with them a little bit of judgment, a little bit of condemnation. And we believing spouses feel that deeply. And so do our children. And so will our spouses. If they, if, if you do talk to our spouses and they know that, you know, you already condemn them because, or have cast judgment on them because clearly they must be sinning or clearly they, you know, were too proud or lacked faith or something. I think it's important to, that we're careful not to increase the burden of guilt that the believing spouse may be carrying to not na- not make him or her feel like if if they had been more spiritual they could have done something to prevent their spouse from leaving well and i even had an elders corn present one time tell me just that very thing he said well you're clearly not doing enough to bring your husband back to the church and uh well he wasn't in a position to judge that <laughs> But, you know, then it makes me feel like when I go to church and, you know, I'm sitting alone with my kids and I don't feel that much support coming from ward members, is it because they think I haven't done my duty? Somehow I have failed, you know, because if I were a good person, clearly I would have brought him back to the church. And that's just an awful lot to put on the believing spouse. So how would you like to see ward leadership, ward members treat the disaffected spouse? Well, I think the first thing is just treat him like a normal person. My husband sometimes comes to church in a polo shirt instead of a white shirt and tie, and he'll drop the kids off for primary. And he says that there are people he's had callings with, people whose cars he's fixed that kind of avoid eye contact and they won't wave at him or say hi or anything. So I would, I would just like them to say hi. On the other hand, we just got a new bishop. And he really has no idea how to deal with my husband. He can't really understand why somebody would leave the church. But he really wants us to feel loved. And he invited my husband and I both to come in. And he didn't have a really clear agenda. He just wanted to understand where where my husband was coming from and, and what he thought. And he wasn't terribly well-versed on a lot of topics. He doesn't really have the background to address some of the concerns, but 
I thought it was really sweet of him to just call us in and let us know that he loved us and he'd like to do anything he can to support our family. And I, I just thought that was really nice. He didn't try to make us feel guilty or he just, he was just nice. I know that it can be really socially isolating for the believing spouse, especially if they don't get invited out to couples nights or activities that they used to get invited to because their non-believing husband or wife uh, makes other people feel a little bit uncomfortable. So they just don't invite them out as a couple. And I think that we should do a better job as members of the church. And I would like to see us reach out to everyone and and love everyone. We, you know, if you invite us to a game night, my husband's not going to try to deconvert you or tell you about the book of Abraham. But um, I really appreciate the people that just treat us like normal people. Yeah, you wouldn't think it would be that hard, but the level of discomfort is really tangible. One frustration that I have is when a bishop or someone says, well, I, I understand that there are a lot of questions and I don't have all the answers right now, but if I just had more time, I could research some of them and I know that all the answers are out there. And I feel like that's a little bit dismissive of the complexities of life and it's a little bit patronizing to say that you are struggling with or your spouse has left the church over questions that they could have found answers to if they had just tried a little bit harder. And I would submit to you that some questions don't have very satisfactory answers in this life. I'm sure that God has the answers, but I think he wants us to wrestle with some of these ultimate questions in life and the answers are not that easy. Now, once a husband or wife decides they're not going to be fully involved in church life, it's going to make the remaining, the believing spouse feel a little bit left out, a little bit uncomfortable. They'll probably be exposed to a lot of challenging church history and difficult theological questions uh, just because their their spouse is so concerned about them. And as a result of both of those things, they might start to feel kind of uncomfortable or out of place at church. So what types of church activities or culture might be difficult for the believing spouse? And what could the ward do to make them feel more welcome and more comfortable at church? Well, I'm going to tell this from from the woman's perspective, because that's all I know. (laughs) But, you know, the church has such an emphasis on marriage and families. And we hear single people talk about how difficult it is sometimes to be a single member in the church. But to be the spouse of a disaffected member is you're kind of in this hybrid world. You're not you're not single. Obviously, you're married. But when you walk in those church doors, you look single because there's no husband at your side or wife at your side. And so you're kind of in this hybrid world of not really single, but sort of kind of treated single. I've often felt that the disaffection of a spouse is very much like a death because you no longer have the marriage that you thought you had, the, the eternal marriage and all the, the ideal LDS marriage. But unlike uh, a death, there's no funeral. 
You know, there's no casseroles brought over to your house. No one acknowledges the pain and the difficulty that you're going through as you deal with the loss of this ideal marriage. So when there's ward activities, especially elders court, well, here's another really good one. My husband is uh, on church records is still an elder. So technically I'm supposed to, I'm supposed to be going to these elders quorum activities, but I'm in my fifties and all these elders are, you know, in their twenties and maybe thirties. And, and I'm not included in high priest activities either. I'm not included in any, either one because, you know, my husband's not a high priest, but then I'm not really, I don't have a husband anyway, as far as they're concerned. So, you know, I'm really put into this, this kind of no man's life and, you know, have never really had anybody reach out and make me feel included in either one of these groups. So that's kind of difficult. Now, going to the temple has been another very difficult thing for me sometimes. Now, I love going to the temple. Personally, sitting, going to the temple and the endowment sessions uh, and even the initiatory sessions, I just find myself fed spiritually. But the, the one thing, <laughs> there's one part, and it's the prayer circle. Because we have a very small temple, typically it's always husbands and wives that go up there. And so for decades now, I have never been able to participate in that. Because if if a man goes up and his wife is in the room, she's going to go up with him. And so again, there I am. I'm, I'm not really single, but I'm not really married. And, <laughs> and it really shows up. At, at things like this. And so I would really hope that ward leaders can be aware of that and make sure that, that the spouse doesn't fall through those cracks, that they don't feel like they're caught between the two worlds, the world of being single and the world of being married, but that you really do have a place in the ward. You know, just one of the nicest ladies I know, lady in my ward, for our last stake conference before the adult session, she sent me a text and said, hey, we're saving a seat for you. So come, come find us and come sit with us. And I thought that was just incredibly thoughtful of her to know that I would be coming by myself and I wouldn't have anybody to sit with. If she had not reached out to me, I probably would not have gone to that meeting. I really appreciated her thoughtfulness. That's very sweet. And you know, I have felt that, you know, many, many times when I had little kids and juggling little kids all by myself, and fortunately, my kids were pretty well behaved, but, you know, they had their days. And, you know, when I think of moms like you with all you, you know, you, I had three and they were all four years apart. Yours are all quite a bit closer together. I can't imagine how difficult that would be to juggle, you know, all your little children, you know, without your husband's support. And how, how wonderful that would be if, you know, some couple or single person in your ward were to see you walk in and just say, hey, I've got a seat safe for you and your kids and, and sit next to you and, and make sure that you had help during sacrament meeting with one of the little ones had to be taken out. And it's, it's so hard anyway to have to face those struggles and then to have to ask for the help and, and, you know, actually spell it out. It would just be so much nicer if someone could see that need and answer it without having to be asked. Marriages experience a lot of stress when someone leaves the church. Has there been any kind of marital advice that's been most helpful or even maybe what's been hurtful in your situation? I think one of the most important things is respect. 
It may be difficult for an atheist to respect a belief in God. It may be difficult for a believer to respect uh, atheism. But we can respect each other's motivations and respect that the other person is searching for and believing in the truth that they have found. We, we can believe that they're sincere in their desires for goodness and truth. I think it's really important that the spouses not try to reconvert or deconvert each other and that if religion is super painful to talk about, to maybe focus on some other areas of their relationship, emotional, physical, intellectual, to, to build up these other areas, maybe to find a new hobby that you can do together. I definitely think it's inappropriate to counsel somebody to get divorced just because their spouse doesn't believe that Joseph Smith was a prophet or has doubts about the divinity of polygamy. I mean, obviously, if there's abuse, that's a a different situation. But I think that the church stands for families and it ought to do everything it can. Leaders, members, home teachers, visiting teachers, friends, to support marriage and and keep families intact and together. There are stories of members who are counseled to divorce their spouse who's no longer temple worthy and find somebody that can give them an eternal marriage. And frankly, I think that's horrible. Do you think that there's an assumption on the part of the active members that when someone leaves the church that that just nullifies them, that marriage, that you're no longer married for eternity. Yeah, you got married in the temple, but all bets are off because, hey, your husband left the church. Oh, yeah, definitely. I don't believe that. But I know that it's a really, really common belief because when people join our our support group on Facebook, this is almost always a question that they ask or that they're really concerned about is what just happened to my eternal marriage? Did my spouse unilaterally make it null and void? Are we going to be ripped apart in the eternities? There are even some really awful theories about how you'll be taken from your less righteous husband and and be given in marriage to a more righteous man as maybe a second or third or fourth wife. And it's, it's a big concern. But I'm going to trust God to make my marriage possible in the afterlife. And I'm trying to focus on making my marriage something that I would like to continue in the afterlife by making it the best marriage I can here while I'm I'm on earth. Yeah. And it doesn't make yours a second class marriage either. I think it needs just as much support as as any other marriage or family in the church. Now, sometimes just to have harmony in the home, a mixed faith couple is going to have to make some compromises and approach some things differently than maybe a a full member family might. Do you want to discuss some compromises or some things that a mixed faith couple might approach differently? Sure. Yeah. I think the big one, you know, you, when, when people come to our support group at Facebook page, and there's a couple of the big issues that, that we, questions we hear over and over and over again after the one you mentioned, you know, is my marriage still an eternal marriage? The next one is, what do we do about tithing? That just seems to be such a real hot button issue. And hopefully bishops are sensitive to it. And I think most are. I think the handbook now 
you know, kind of gives good advice on how to handle this. You know, some of us may not pay any tithing at all because our spouses just don't want a dime of our, you know, the family money to go to the church. Some spouses, you know, couples may say, okay, you can pay tithing on your half or you can pay tithing on what you earn. And so, you know, there's different ways that that, that a, a couple may handle the issue of tithing. I had a really, really wonderful bishop who I think, you know, for me just sets the standard of how a bishop should handle this question of tithing. Usually, of course, you know, when it's tithing settlement time, they put a sign-up sheet outside the bishop's door and everyone signs up for a time that, that they want to come in for tithing settlement. This bishop knew that because we lived out of town, that coming into town was some, we live about 25 miles out of town, it's kind of hard to make a special trip for a tithing settlement. So he called our house and he spoke to my husband. He actually, he, you know, that's who he asked for us to speak to my husband. And he said, he says, well, tithing, it's time for tithing settlements coming up. And I wanted to know if you and your family would like to come in for tithing settlement. Well, of course, my husband had no desire to. He was nice about it. He said, no, I don't want to do that. And he, and the bishop said, okay, would you mind if your wife and your children came in for a tithing settlement? And he said, my husband said, no, that's fine. And then, and this was the part that I just really thought was great. He's then said, and what time would be most convenient for you and your family? And those three questions really, really had a huge impact on me. The fact that, first of all, he recognized, you know, my husband as being a part of this whole financial picture. He he didn't exclude my husband. And that he also knew he was going to be discussing financial things with me. And he wasn't going to do that without my husband's permission. I thought that was very sensitive and caring. And then that he made sure that it was at a time that was most convenient for us. That to me has, has always stood out as, you know, the best example of how a bishop can handle the issue of tithing. Priesthood interviews, worthiness interviews that come up once a year or come up at the time of, you know, priesthood advancement in, in young boys' lives is another one. Some spouses are very, very sensitive about the questions that are often asked in these interviews. And they don't want their children to feel intimidated or to be discussing things that are maybe crossing some boundaries or maybe inappropriate. And so many times the, they'll want to be present for those interviews, not to interrupt them, not to put a damper on them, but to at least observe and make sure that nothing is discussed that would be inappropriate in the eyes of the disaffected spouse. My experience is, you know, I had one bishop who was just adamant that that not happen. He, he just absolutely flat out refused to allow me to be present for my son's interview. I think this is one of those times when a bishop, ward leaders, just need to be sensitive to how these issues might impact the family. Give a little leeway, make some exceptions for things that you might not otherwise have considered, and allow the, a, a parent to be present for those interviews. Puts everyone's mind at ease that that these are these interviews are positive things for the children. Yes, I just want to point out real quick that the believing spouse may come to the bishop with some kind of request that sounds a little bit odd, but before that gets rejected out of hand, I 
I would just like to point out that the bishop may have no idea how many tearful conversations happened between the husband and wife before they came up with a compromise that they could both agree on, whether that is blessing the baby at home or asking that all chastity questions are removed from the interview or that a a parent is present for the interview or that mom holds the baby during the blessing or that dad stands as a witness for the baptism or stands in the confirmation circle. So before denying a request, please realize that the choice may be between not having the event happen at all or having it happen in a slightly unusual way. One spouse may refuse to have the event happen um, if certain conditions are not met. So just be aware of that. Also, we've had counsels from our leaders that whenever possible, we should involve the parents. I would refer those who are interested to Elder Packer's talk in April of 2010, where he addresses this issue. Please be very, very prayerful before turning down a request to let someone speak at a baptismal service or otherwise participate in these kinds of family events. Even if a parent doesn't qualify in by the by the usual parameters to be involved in a an ordinance or some kind of event, they still qualify as parents of the child. And I I think we should rejoice if they want to be involved in some kind of church event or ordinance. And we should remember that this may be one of the few times that they are opening themselves up, putting themselves in a situation where they can be touched by the Holy Ghost and have a positive experience with the church. You know, another thing I wanted to talk about is the children of mixed faith couples. My kids often go to church with dad and then they'll, they'll miss sacrament meeting going with him and then they'll come to primary. But they're not always wearing white shirt and tie. Sometimes they're just wearing the clothes that they were wearing when they went to the other church, which had a very different kind of dress code. So I would hope that members and teachers would not shame children who are dressed differently. I mean, I would hope that of anybody who walks in in our chapels, but these kids are really being torn between different worlds. And I would like them to feel as comfortable and welcome as possible in both settings. My daughter is seven this year. I hope that her teacher is going to be sensitive to the fact that she, there's a chance she may choose not to get baptized and that if she does get baptized, dad is not going to be the one who does the baptizing or the confirmation. Yeah. Well, and now how would you handle things like when in primary they might teach the children, you know, word of wisdom or, you know, this year's there's such an emphasis on Sabbath observance. Um, and then, and we find that these are things that in our homes aren't always practiced exactly as they're being taught in primary. Does this provide, you know, does this um, present any kind of challenge Uh, especially for your little ones. Primary is set up to teach our kids about the church. And a lot of the questions are kind of set up so that there's a right answer. And my daughter's having a little bit of trouble because she's not always sure what the right answer is. So I'll let you hear what she has to say about that. 
they like ask questions, if they aren't saying like, do you believe this is true or not? Like just what I just said, but there's it feels like they're asking that just in different words. And I sometimes it's hard for me to answer because I don't know what to say because I'm not sure what is true or right, true or not true. So I sometimes can't figure out the answers to questions. When we teach all of these commandments about not drinking alcohol or not shopping on Sunday or whatever the case may be, to explain that not everybody believes the same things that we do and just because they do these things doesn't make them a bad person. I know that that's a really legitimate concern that some post-Mormons have is that if they let their kids go to church, they're going to get the idea that mom or dad is a bad person because they drink coffee in the morning and nothing could be further from the truth. And so we just need to be careful how we teach these things to the kids that, yeah, these are commandments that we believe in, but not everybody believes in them. And that doesn't make other people bad. They just have different understandings of, of what is truth or what is goodness or what is important and that they're doing the best that they can. And Heavenly Father loves them just as much as he loves us. Yeah. And it seems like we tie, we use this word worthiness or worthy so much in the church and we tie it to keeping, you know, commandments and we have these touchstone commandments such as a word of wisdom and, and tithing and Sabbath observance. And what a sad thing for a child to think that somehow his parent might not be worthy because he does something. Oh, so I, I would worry that that would create, um, a wedge or create doubt or or somehow harm the parent-child relationship when that word worthy is thrown out there like that. And I don't think that we mean it that way. Usually when Mormons say somebody's not worthy, we just mean that they don't meet certain requirements in order to qualify for a temple recommend. But sometimes when people hear not worthy, it translates to worthless, which is never, never true of any of our Father in Heaven's children. And please don't misunderstand. I'm not saying that we should teach kids that these commandments don't matter because God will just love us anyway, no matter what we do. Although I think he will love us. But I would like to see the teaching focus more on the blessings of keeping the commandments rather than the sinfulness of not keeping them. So when we teach the word of wisdom, we could emphasize the blessings of strength and health that that would bring to our bodies. I would hope that none of my children sitting in a young women's lesson or a young men's lesson will ever get the feeling that their family is second class, that we aren't an eternal family, that we're second best because of the way their dad feels. As we teach our kids what the ideal situation is, a mom and dad married and sealed in the temple, let us be very careful that we don't make them feel that any family not fitting that ideal is less beloved by our Heavenly Father or by our ward. I know that when disaffection hit our house, I felt really clueless and underprepared and I just didn't know where to turn. So I wanted to ask you what kinds of resources are out there for 
people who are struggling with their faith or whose spouse is struggling with their faith and what what's out there? What what would you recommend? Well, I think for the disbelieving spouse, they're finding pretty much everything they need. Um, <laughs> there's a lot online for them. I think for the believing spouse and for those who are trying to keep a connection to the church, um, you know, who may be having their own crisis of faith but still want to maintain a connection to the church, those resources are are starting to creep up. You know, when I first started this, there was, like I said, there was nothing. There was no internet and, you know, nothing for, uh, for people in our situation who still believed, but felt their beliefs were being challenged. Um, and, uh, and I'm thrilled to see more and more websites and support groups and Facebook pages coming up that do, you know, lend support, uh, to those who, who were, who were trying to navigate these, these tricky waters that we're in. There's another Testament of Marriage Facebook page, which has been wonderful. That's the one that, that you and I participate in. There's faceseast.net, which is a discussion forum. That one kind of has quieted down quite a bit since since Facebook is kind of the most more popular way to keep in touch. And then just to be spiritually fed, I have found tremendous, tremendous support in listening, and, and I found myself fed spiritually, listening to podcasts. My favorite ones that I go to all the time are Mormon Discussion Podcast with Bill Reel and Mormon Matters with Dan Witherspoon and A Thoughtful Faith with Gina Colville. Now and then I, I find a good one at Mormon Stories. That one can kind of be a a, a not so good one for some people, depending on where they're where they're at with their beliefs. But I have found it helpful from time to time. Some of the podcasts there, but those are the big ones. You know what you're saying right now just reminded me of something we haven't mentioned, and that's the fact that when your spouse starts unearthing all of these challenging things about church history and doctrine and inconsistencies, it's pretty common for the other spouse to start going through their own faith journey, their own trial of faith, which is yet another challenge. And it's good to remember that the believing spouse may want to continue to believe and is still attending church, but that his or her faith may be fragile and that they're going to be particularly sensitive to certain types of nuance or assumption. And so just be patient with them. Yeah. And the difference is, is, you know, the disaffected spouse search these things out on his or her own self, you know, initiative, studied it out, came to their conclusions. And clearly their conclusions were, you know, I'm, you know, I, I can't believe in this church anymore. I'm out. Whereas the live, the believing spouse basically has all this dumped on them. Their spouse comes to them and says, you know, Joseph Smith this and polygamy that and City Creek Mall this and, you know, tithing that and just dumps it all on you, sometimes all at once. And you are left trying to make sense of it all, knowing that, you know, if you go to your bishop, the answer quite likely will be, you know, none of that really matters. All that matters is pray and read your scriptures and keep the commandments. So you really find yourself unable to find support now that all of these complex issues, all of these difficult histories, 
You know, you're being forced to study them. You never wanted to go find out about polyandry and Mount Meadows Massacre. You didn't want to know, search that out. But now you're being compelled to because of the path and the choices that your spouse has made. And it is, it's, it really can leave you floundering spiritually. And, and that's why these podcasts have just been so, so helpful for me to help, help me to kind of put these difficult issues into a faithful perspective. Come join us on another Testament marriage we have and, and on our podcast club. We, we discuss podcasts. We discuss the issues, um, that we face as families. We discuss the issues we're facing with the church. Um, and even though it's not where we want to be, you know, this isn't what we chose. We didn't want to, you know, there's the whole vocabulary of disaffected and faith crisis and, you know, all these, all of these new words that completely new vocabulary. We never planned to be a part of this, but we are. And so it's good to be with other people and help each other out, support each other. Um, those of us that have been at it for years, are happy to help those that are, you know, just getting started. And we all benefit from each other's support. I would never have signed up for this trial, but I am really grateful for the support and the wonderful people that I've met as a result of it. And it's been a lot of fun talking with you tonight. And I hope that we've said something that might be helpful to someone. Once you find, once you find your footing, it does get better. It does get easier. And you do find that you have a wonderful marriage. So I guess that wraps it up. Uh, cue the music. <laughs> no other success can compensate for failure in the home. I like that quote because it tells us where our ultimate priorities should be, but I also worry that it could be used to make a wife or a parent feel like a failure if we just define success as complete active membership in the church. And I don't think that we as spouses or parents have failed when our children or loved ones use their agency to find truth elsewhere. 